From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett, and you found us. This is The Conspiracy Show. It's Lyme Disease Awareness Month, and medical journalist author Helky Ferry will be along very shortly to talk about what can only be described as a near-total lack of awareness about chronic Lyme. Uh, Polling stations, in the meantime, have opened at a referendum on self-determination in Donetsk and Lugansk regions of southeast Ukraine. And the question on the referendum in Donetsk is as follows. Do you support an act of independence of the Donetsk People's Republic? The ballot papers are printed in Ukrainian and Russian with two options for answer yes and no. Now, you may be asking yourselves, why should we care about a referendum vote in faraway southeastern Ukraine? Well, I would put to you that that yes or no vote is far more significant than, for example, the upcoming provincial election right here in the province of Ontario. When we vote on uh, June 12th, little or nothing will change here. Whether it's the governing liberals that get back in with a minority or a majority, or whether the progressive conservatives get in, they're all just managing the decline here in the province, uh, rearranging the uh, the deck chairs on the uh, Titanic, if you will. Uh, but the referendum votes in southeastern Ukraine could very well have grave consequences. These seemingly benign votes might just provide the tipping point, which could lead to a major military confrontation between Russia, the U.S., and its NATO allies. I'm talking nuclear war, and I'm not overstating things here, I don't believe. We've got a lot riding on these yes or no votes in both Donetsk and Lugansk. Let's suppose for a moment the ethnic Russians in these two regions vote to secede from Ukraine and throw their lot in with Russia. How will Ukraine respond? Will they accept the vote or will they intervene militarily? If Ukraine's interim leaders reject such a vote, how will Russia respond? Would that provide Putin the justification for invading Ukraine? If he does, how will the U.S. and its NATO allies respond? So you see where this could go. Meanwhile, the U.S. is performing military drills in Eastern Europe. They've sent troops to Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. How would the U.S. respond, I wonder, if Russia were to send troops to Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala? How would the U.S. respond if the Russians tried to put nuclear missiles in Cuba? Oh, wait. I've seen that movie before. It is, as I mentioned, May, and it is Lyme Disease Awareness Month. And this is a scourge of a disease, and it's been declared a global epidemic uh, by the World Health Organization. But you wouldn't know it if you showed up at a doctor's office complaining of Lyme disease-type symptoms, particularly chronic Lyme. Your doctor might even tell you it's all in your mind. Or they might be willing to test you, but the tests they run are so arcane, so out of date, they're useless. Even if they've arrived at the conclusion that you may have chronic Lyme, they couldn't treat you properly because if they did, they could lose your license. Huh? I mean, at this point, you might be asking yourself quite justifiably, what kind of crazy mixed-up world are we living in? Well, here to provide some much-needed clarity on the subject of chronic Lyme disease is Helky Ferry. Helke is a medical journalist and the co-author of Ending Denial, the Lyme Disease Epidemic, and she's also the author of Creative Outrage, 
Creative Outrage, a medical journalist reports on the good, the bad, and the ugly in current medicine. Helgi was born in Germany to Nazi resistance fighters and and spent much of her childhood in India, where, 42 years ago, she met her husband, a Canadian doctor. Having raised a family of three biological and 12 adopted children, they now live here in Ontario with two dogs and seven cats. She holds a master's degree from the University of Toronto in physical anthropology, and uh, she runs KOS Publishing, or COS Publishing, which is dedicated to the politics of medicine. Helki Ferry, how are you? Thank you, I'm fine. Well, here we are, May again, International Lyme Disease Month, and this is your fourth annual update on what uh, we Canadians can expect when becoming infected with the world's most common tick-borne disease. I know you're hoping this is the last time, you know, you've got you've to drive this message home. Uh, but first, we need a definition. For those uh, maybe who haven't been paying attention, what is the definition of Lyme disease? What is it, Helki? Lyme disease is one of the many diseases that are, are uh, transmitted by a tick, which is a you know a small tick that is infected uh, from uh, a previous blood meal on another animal, commonly deer, but also many others, birds and so on and so forth, especially songbirds, um, and transmits that infection into a human being if it wants to get a blood meal from a human being. And this particular infection is unusual because the main cause, the the main bug that causes Lyme disease is called Borrelia burgdorferi after Willy Burgdorfer who identified it. He's a Swiss scientist. And um, the trouble is that it doesn't ever travel alone. It comes with many, many co-infections, all of which need to be treated, often requiring many different antibiotics in order to catch them all. Uh, And you can't eradicate the disease until you have treated the uh, main bug as well as all the bugs that travel with it. And and my understanding is that this this bacterium is kind of shaped like a corkscrew, so it burrows into your skin. No, no, no. The, the corkscrew. These are very small uh, entities. Uh, they don't. The the, the tick uh, is the one that borrows into right. your skin, but it right. delivers into your bloodstream in the process of taking blood out of you, sort of like a mosquito would. Uh, in the process, it delivers these bacteria into your into your bloodstream. It just happens to be corkscrewed, but it has nothing to do with its function. Uh, there are eight. Uh, corkscrew-shaped bacteria that can cause serious illness in human beings, and this is one of them. The other most famous one is syphilis. Right. Now, the interesting thing about Lyme disease, what's been discovered, is it can masquerade. Uh, it's like the great impressionist in the, uh, in the uh, infectious disease world. It can masquerade as many different diseases. Tell me about that. Well, uh, I think... The reason people say masquerade at times is because it has caused such a problem to the way we diagnose diseases. When somebody comes down with multiple sclerosis or ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, or um, a child is born who becomes autistic, um, or rheumatoid arthritis, uh, we usually used to refer to them as Um, idiopathic diseases, meaning we don't know the cause. And now it turns out that one cause of those diseases is in fact Lyme, and that an infection of a particular type can 
disorient uh, the entire immune system to the point where an autoimmune disease that was previously not understood in terms of its cause all of a sudden appears. And the proof of the pudding is in the treatment. If you treat these people with uh, the appropriate antibiotics that are designed for treating Lyme disease, the multiple sclerosis or the rheumatoid arthritis goes away. For the child that has had its uh, development of the brain and the nervous system wrecked while in utero of a mother who was infected with Lyme, there's nothing you can do. But all the other diseases you can. And the doctors who specialize in uh, uh, in Lyme disease, for example, with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, they don't... Um, they, when a patient comes in with symptoms of Lou Gehrig's disease, they don't even test the patient anymore. They immediately start treating them for Lyme because so far they have not been able to find a single ALS case that was not Lyme when, when you tested the blood. Amazing. So, uh, and, and as you point out in a, the new article that you've written for Vitality Magazine, Lyme Disease in Canada, The Never-Ending Story, which is in uh, the May edition, uh, the... Scientists now consider Lyme disease to be the most complex infectious diseases in the world because it causes or triggers all of these things that you That's mentioned. Right. That's exactly right. And the World Health Organization has done a lot of um, uh, information uh, work in this direction because in 2008, the World Health Organization declared Lyme a world epidemic. It now has more victims than uh, AIDS uh, and um, tuberculosis and various other ones that I have now forgotten combined. Where did it get its name, Lyme disease? Where does that name come oh, from? There's a town in uh, Connecticut in the United States on the eastern seaboard uh, called Lyme. And uh, it was the first one in which uh, Lyme was discovered when in the ni early 1970s a whole bunch of children, more than 30, all of a sudden, uh, all of them completely unrelated to each other, came down with very serious, debilitating arthritis in their legs. And this was so sudden, and so many of them in one go, that an infection was suspected, because that's just not what happens in an autoimmune disease. You don't have a whole population affected. And rheumatoid arthritis has always been seen as a, you know, as a, as a uh, it was not seen as an infectious disease. And uh, it was then a big research project was undertaken, and the result was that it was identified that indeed it was an infection. And the Swiss uh, researcher, uh, Willy Borgdorfer, was the one who identified the actual bug. And from then on forward, um, many, much research has been done on it. It's probably the most researched infectious disease in the world, uh, which showed the co-infections and many other strange uh, unusual uh, features that this particular infection has. And so someone could go out for a walk uh, in the woods, and if they're not properly dressed, long pants and maybe pants tucked inside their socks and so forth, they get uh, bitten by a tick or a tick attaches itself to them. Uh, and all of this can result uh, one innocent benign stroll in the woods and all of a sudden you could come down with ALS or rheumatoid arthritis or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's? That's, that's a horrifying thought. Yeah, it's a fact. Uh, it has to be an endemic area. That's number one. Not all areas are endemic, but the, most of the research in Canada that has been done on where these bugs actually are 
uh, have been done by very well-known Canadian university-based researchers. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, we know where the endemic areas are, and this research continues. Now, the thing is there are, uh, there's a very small group of people who have an, an immunity to it. Uh, and, and that, that's very few, so don't, <laughs> don't count on it. Um, but if you have the good luck to be um, bitten by one of those ticks that leave a rash, which is only one or two varieties, and it's in our book, Ending Denial, there's the details on all of that from the researchers who have discovered this. If, if you're bitten by something that leaves this telltale large rash around the bite... Looks like a target. Yeah. Then you have a very good chance of being cured of this really quickly. Uh, you get flu-like symptoms and that kind of thing, and you, you know, get a high fever. Sometimes you don't, but most people do if that happens to be the one that uh, bit you. And then if you're treated... Uh, for about three months with the appropriate antibiotic, which is not that difficult to figure out because it's all been done, right. uh, then you are fine. But if you are... The key is early detection. Listen, I, ha listen, I have to take a time out. We'll come back, Helki, and continue to discuss this horrible scourge of a disease. Back with more of my conversation with Helki Ferry, talking about Lyme disease, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show. We are back with Helka Ferry, a medical journalist and the author of Ending Denial. We're talking about Lyme disease. It is Lyme Disease Month, and she has a brand new article in Vitality magazine called Lyme Disease in Canada, The Never-Ending Story. Okay, so uh, early detection obviously is the key, and if you're lucky enough to be <laughs> lucky enough uh, to be bitten uh, by a tick that uh, leaves sort of this red rash, this red target around the bite area, then you can seek immediate treatment, and uh, we, we'll, we'll get into the treatment protocols and so forth in, in a moment. But if you're not lucky enough, a fairy to a uh, halky to get uh, bitten by a, a tick that leaves that red mark, you might not even know you've been infected. Is that right? That's, that's correct. And the, uh, the, 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 there are about, I think, 15 different species. And in my book, Ending Denial, I'm the co-author. I'm not the main author. I'm the editor and the co-author. The scientists who have published this information have their own articles in there in which they show which kind of ticks are distributed where and how they, what responses occur when you get bitten by them. But, of course, you could also be bitten in, underneath the hairline, let's say, and you wouldn't know because you can't feel anything. It, the, the, the target is niche. So you wouldn't know the, the the tick that bites you releases an anesthetic at the same time. Oh my lord! Into the into the victim, so it's not like a mosquito bite, which you you know it's really itchy. Um, yeah, that's true. But the other ones do not leave a target like um, you know mark that gives you an idea. But when you get recurrent uh, flu symptoms and so on. And let's say one of your knees begins to swell up. That is a particularly typical response. And you have a very, very sore knee, and it's like arthritis, but it's only one knee instead of two, which is very unusual. Um, then you should be seeking a diagnosis for Lyme. Uh, or, of course, you end up with other problems, terrific headaches and recurring, you know, that recur all the time. And if the doctor doesn't know that 
the differential diagnosis should include looking for such an infection, you wind up being treated with a drug for the symptom, which is symptom control, and 90% or more of all drugs that are on the market are symptom controlled and are curative. And then, of course, you get sicker and sicker and sicker because as far as the bugs are concerned, who cares whether the symptoms are controlled? They simply proliferate. And, and, and as you mentioned earlier, uh, this bacterium uh, never travels alone. There are some 30 other uh, bacterium that, that, that travel with it. And, and so did, can they hide in your system before making themselves sort of known? I mean, in other words, can this be latent for many years before it finally strikes you? Um, that is a question that is under a great deal of research. The little bit that we do know is if you are infected, for the first 20 to 48 hours, you have this window of opportunity to get the bugs. And if you don't get them, for whatever reason, then they begin to take up residence in your body, and more and more of them will basically take up residence in deep tissues. So then they come up in some people periodically. So, for example, very often in women, they will come up every 28 days because when a woman gets her period, uh, there are all sorts of immune-suppressive responses going on, and that gives them an opportunity to come out. And then, of course, they have these horrific symptoms, which are not PMS. <laughs> they are really, really bad if you've ever seen people like that. And if the immune system is strong enough to recover to a certain extent after the period is over, they will sort of recover, but eventually the periodicity of the 28 days disappears completely and they are always sick. And then you have, you know, full-blown Lyme. So there are all sorts of opportunities that for doctors can be, you know, uh, confusing uh, if they are not trained in Lyme. This, is, this may sound like a strange question, Helki, and I ask a lot of them. Uh, but this Lyme disease, it, it, it almost seems to have an intelligence to it. And, and if I didn't know any better, I'd, I'd think it was designed in a lab or something. I mean, it, well, you're, you're into conspiracy. And yes. in this case, it's an open, clear-cut conspiracy. Um, in fact, it's, it's not really, there's no secret about it. There are two aspects to this disease which are well-researched and well-published and totally mainstream. Anybody deny, who denies it simply has not read it. Um, the first of these two things is that we know that the Lyme bacteria, which is an old, old bacterium, okay, we know of the existence of this particular bacterium going back into fossils 50,000 years ago. So it's not a new uh, creature, as it were, but it doesn't necessarily appear everywhere, and it has a history like all other diseases. But we do know that the uh, uh, Nazi regime specifically experimented with this bug because it is disabling to populations if you have enough of these bugs to uh, distribute. And we know that the expert on this particular disease was under the uh, Operation Paperclip when the uh, Eisenhower um, administration imported all the famous Nazi scientists to the United States under that Operation Paperclip, the expert on Lyme disease was imported into the United States and given a huge laboratory and funds in Lyme, Connecticut. Aha. Bingo. Are we talking Plum Island? Yeah. Now, when Hillary Clinton became the Secretary of State, uh, one of her first acts in the first week of her administration then uh, was to close down that laboratory because the fear was 
that some of the bacteria that they had been messing around with and viruses there, this guy has long died, uh, but his research was was real and was an actual fact, you know, paid for by the American government and so on. She closed down this thing because the uh, bugs that were still known to be there among the experimental bugs would affect the cattle of the United States. And if it, it took hold, if these things took hold in the American cattle industry, it could wipe wipe out the entire cattle industry. So she closed it down. These are government documents. This was in the newspapers. This is, this is nothing of secret. It's a fact. So we do know that there is a biological warfare basis to its arrival in North America. That's, that's one thing. The other thing is that um, we know that the insurance industry is very unhappy about this disease because the, the real conspiracy, if you like, lies in the fact that and this is also documented by FDA documentation, by public hearings. Much of that is with all of its sources in a famous book by Pamela Weintraub, who is a medical science writer and was the editor of Discover magazine and got Lyme. And she wrote a book called Cure Unknown, which won the highest award for medical, for medical reporting uh, in the year that it was published, 2009. And Pamela Weintraub shows all the documentation and the details on the FDA hearings from which we know that the industry, the insurance industry in the United States, made every possible effort to stop this disease from being generally treated because it is expensive to treat and then they lose money. So in Canada, the parallel is that if we did what medical science currently knows to be true, which is to test people for this disease with correct tests, it would kind of bankrupt <laughs> OHIP or Medicare. Um, because you have to remember that what a doctor should do in accordance with the published science is the moment a patient turns up with any of these symptoms that could be put into the ca category of idiopathic diseases, of which you just mentioned some, from Parkinson's to uh, multiple sclerosis to rheumatoid arthritis, they would have to test all these people because the vast majority of them got it through Lyme. Well, do you have any a handle, are there any statistics uh, on, on the number of people uh, that are affected here in Canada? Well, we have the statistics from the, uh, um, from the CDC, which is the uh, Center for Disease Control in the United States, which also is the source for our statistics. And last year they declared that uh, annually a minimum of 300,000 people are newly infected, new cases of 300,000. That is in the regions which are not highly endemic. In the regions that are highly endemic, such as Connecticut and the neighboring small states in New England, the uh, cases are estimated to be a million new cases a year. So, so here in Canada, hazard, can you hazard a guess how, what percentage of the Canadian population has Lyme disease without even knowing it, perhaps? Uh, I, I can only hazard the guess that the CDC uses as a comparator because Canada is roughly 10% of the United States in terms of the population. And now that we know that uh, Lyme disease is not something that you can catch in warm areas, but you can catch it in Labrador and in Yellowknife. 
these bugs can live there just fine, particularly because they infect birds, every kind of bird, raptor birds, uh, songbirds, you name it. So because we know that, we would have to hazard the guess that is published by the CDC. In other words, 10% of that range, 300,000 to 1 million new cases a year. So 30,000 to, you know... 30,000 to 100,000 new cases a year in, in, yeah, that, in Canada. That would be a conservative guess, and that's not my opinion. No. That is the Center for Disease Control uh, examining the data. And this has been going on for, for decades. Well, when I published that book, Ending Denial, um, the impression was at that time that it would be about 30,000 new cases, and it then became a huge legal issue, and there was a big investigation by the Attorney General of Connecticut, and so on and so forth, because people had found evidence that this was, well, plainly a lie. And uh, the CDC was then forced to bring out the statistics that they actually knew, and that is why this declaration was made about a year ago about these much higher numbers than had previously been allowed to be known. Helka Ferry is with us, and uh, she is the author of Ending Denial. We're talking about Lyme disease during what is, of course, Lyme Disease Month here in the month of May. Now, uh, Helgi, let me just go back to uh, Plum Island for a second. Um, so is it is it your contention, or does, does the research seem to indicate that uh, the bacterium responsible for Lyme disease was at Plum Island, it was being weaponized, and it escaped into the general population? That is what they think. To prove something like that uh, is uh, only possible in terms of its effects, because that it was intentionally released is extremely unlikely. But bacteria are very, um, well, (laughs) they have the upper hand on mobility and everything, so the chances of it having escaped uh, quite unintentionally are very high. There are also other ways in which it could have escaped without anybody actually knowing. For example, Willy Bergdorfer, after whom the bug is named, got the disease himself simply by the laboratory mice with whom he was experimenting with Lyme disease, having urinated on his hand. It went right through the skin. Oh, my. Oh, my. How, how... He describes this himself. This is, you can just go on the, put Willy Bergdorfer into Google and go from there. It is also in the book uh, Cure Unknown by Pamela Weintraub. Um, and he got it that way. All right, listen, I've got to jump in here again, and uh, we'll take another time out. We'll come back, and I want to find out why it's so difficult to get a proper uh, diagnosis and uh, almost impossible to get proper treatment here in Canada, despite the fact uh, that the World Health Organization declared Lyme disease a world epidemic in 2008. Everyone seems to know about it, but us here in Canada. Back with more of my conversation with Helky Ferry right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
It's Lyme Disease Month, and Helki Ferry is uh, with us, publisher of Vitality Magazine and the co-author and editor of Ending Denial. Now, let's, um, let's talk about the situation here in Canada, despite, as I mentioned before the break, the fact that the World Health Organization declared Lyme disease a world epidemic in 2008. And the figures are dire, let's face it, here in North America, the number of new infections every year. Why is it at this point still so difficult to get a proper diagnosis? You walk into a doctor's office and they won't even mention the word Lyme disease. It's as if they, they don't think it even exists. Well, the, um, uh, the, the, the conflict between two organizations is at the bottom of this. There is an organization called the Infectious Disease Society of America, and they are uh, basically, um, I suppose, in the service of the industry, meaning the uh, insurance industry. This is also not my guess, but it is based on FDA public hearings and on large reports that have dealt with these conflicts of interest in great detail and even resulted in a legal investigation and so on. Uh, you can get all of this out of uh, Pamela Weintraub's book, my book, with all the sources that prove it. So the IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of uh, America, takes, the, takes whatever uh, the industry tells them to do. It's that simple. They will, not, they will simply pretend that the, and they do pretend in their guidelines, for example, which are now defunct but are still being cited, they do pretend that there is no information uh, online that is, you know, what I just told you, and that there is no, uh, they just downplay the numbers, they downplay the uh, virulence of the infection, and they simply will not recognize, they simply won't discuss anything that has to do with the research that shows that it can cause all these very serious um, other diseases that we didn't have a cause for before. Um, I'm not suggesting that multiple sclerosis is caused only by Lyme. I'm just saying that's one cause we know of, okay? And it's the same with all the other diseases. Now, there's also an organization called ILADS, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. And ILADS is international, and they have done all this massive research on... uh, on Lyme, uh, which shows all the other things that we know, and they are the basis for the investigations that the CDC finally had to make, and they are the basis for the um, law that was recently passed, the omnibus bill, um, under the guidance of Congressman uh, Wolf, uh, which requires now that the American government has to take this very, very seriously. Yes, only after President Bush, former President Bush, contracted the disease himself. That's how it began. That's how it began. That's true. And he contracted the disease. It's sexually transmissible. And his wife did too. And he was very lucky that he was in the hands of an eyelids doctor who immediately suspected Lyme because, after all, the man has a great big ranch in Texas and the Lone Star Tech is the one that transmits, in Texas, transmits Lyme. And Bush, of course, had this horrible experience, and it was educational for him, and he directed Congress to get started on this problem. Uh, So that was a very good thing for him to do, and it was quite successful. But recently, of course, Bush is no longer president. You know, time goes on. And recently, the Obama administration has proceeded with some real action on Lyme. Um, But the difficulty is that you have... A medical organization that purports to be the voice on infectious diseases and simply ignores 
anything that is unpleasant or expensive for the insurance industry. And as you say, up here in Canada, uh, if uh, they were to test properly for Lyme disease, that would op- open up a whole can of worms, and it could bankrupt uh, the uh, the um, the healthcare system up here. Yeah, well, the healthcare system is in trouble anyway because if you don't treat this, exactly, uh, you wind up with all these people who have all these dreadful diseases, from Alzheimer's to to uh, multiple sclerosis, and uh, they end up with very expensive wheelchairs and treatment and so on and so forth. So it's a very short-sighted policy. In fact, it's absolutely crazy. Pay me now or pay me later. Okay, we'll take a quick time out and come back. Uh, and uh, I also uh, want to talk about proper uh, the proper treatment protocol and whether that's available in Canada. I'm guessing probably not. Back with more of my conversation with Helky Ferry as we discuss Lyme disease right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Helky Ferry stays with us for a few moments yet as we discuss Lyme disease. Now, here's uh, something that uh, is absolutely frightening. Uh, and again, uh, people can read about this in your uh, new article in Vitality Magazine, Lyme Disease in Canada, The Never-Ending Story. It can be transmitted through the uh, through uh, blood donations um, <clears throat> the problem with blood donations first of all the sexual transmission is the most serious and that has now been proven because every sample taken of semen and every sample taken of vaginal fluids of people who have this disease contained live uh, live Lyme bacteria that's that's now published so there's no ifs ands and buts on that and in in terms of infectious disease policy anywhere in the world a disease that is transmitted sexually is, uh, it doesn't get any worse, okay? The blood supply is nothing by comparison to a sexually transmissible disease. So Lyme is in a very real way, quite literally, the syphilis of the 21st century. Mm. So this is important. Now the blood supply is a different story. It, it is true when we met with the blood supply people, the Canadian Blood Services had a very fancy meeting in which they invited all of us people who are working with Lyme um, <clears throat> to discuss things with them over fancy food and nothing happened. Um, it is true, and it was published in the flagship journal called Transfusion, that Lyme bacteria survive in blood just fine, thank you. However, because of their periodicity of behavior, meaning they sometimes lie in deep tissues, and this, the Japanese researchers have proven that they come out of the deep tissues in what is known in mathematics as a sine wave, in a very predictable, um, mathematically known formula. Now, if somebody donates blood at the time that the stuff is in the deep tissues, they would not be delivering any dangerous um, materials into the blood system, unless they have all sorts of um, what is known as uh, co-infections, 
And among them, Babesia and Bartonella are the most famous and equally serious infections, and those have, the literature is full of examples of how people have donated blood and then other people who got the blood became sick with Babesia or, or Babiosis, as it's called, and then that has to be treated and you're very, very ill. These are very serious infections and they are the classic co-infections of Lyme. So what this amounts to is we have no patient in the record, in the, in the scientific record, who has the disease, the Lyme disease per se, meaning the Burkdorferi bacterium found in there from a transfusion, but we have lots of them who have the co-infections. But because those co-infections are never by themselves, but always come with Lyme, you should do something about it with the blood services. You should not allow people to give blood who have had Lyme or who have uh, any potential of having it. This is not difficult to do. The American blood services have a very detailed questionnaire that every donor has to go through. And the, anybody who is even vaguely, potentially, you know, infected or could have been infected in the past and is now dormant, uh, by any of these bugs that are co-infections, including the Lyme bacterium itself, cannot donate. But in Canada, we don't have that. And again, do you suspect it's because they don't want to admit that it exists because that would open this can of worms and they'd have to start testing? No, they don't have enough blood. They don't have enough we blood. Have to, we have to import blood from the United States. We just don't have enough, and it would just sort of shut down the system if you had to be that careful. But now, of course, it's all going to be coming out because Elizabeth May, the leader of the Green Party, put forward a Lyme disease policy bill in the federal government, which has gone through second reading and has now gone to committee. And I'm glad to report was supported by all members of all parties. Aha, some light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, uh, but it's still a very long tunnel. <laughs> indeed, yes. And is that a light at the end of the tunnel or is that an oncoming train? No, I think it's definitely a light because it is extremely well worded. Okay. And uh, she was uh, she made a real point of saying that our book ending denial. She says that in the in Hansard, in the proceedings of the debate in the House of Commons, that that was the source that she yes. used because it contained all the scientific material that could not be contested. Yes, but before we can our chickens, let's not forget that we have an election coming up in probably about a year and a half. These things, these ten things, often tend to get tabled, and then they're never seen or heard from again. But I hope I'm wrong. Uh, help. You know, once you get started on this, it won't go away, because Lyme disease is just so overwhelming that it won't go away. Uh, whether it gets uh, passed into law now or with, after the next election, that doesn't even faze me, because I know that there's simply too much ground support for this. Now, let's talk about treatment. What is the proper uh, treatment protocol? for someone who has a Lyme disease and, and didn't catch it early? Well, we've published several treatment protocols because there are people, for example, who cannot tolerate uh, heavy-duty um, antibiotic treatment or long-term antibiotic treatment if they have chronic Lyme. Uh, there are people who uh, respond particularly well to different kinds of treatment. This is all in the published literature. Uh, I would say there's at least half a dozen excellent, well-documented treatment protocols, uh, sometimes intravenous, sometimes by mouth. It depends on the age. It depends on what other problems you've got. Uh, it is treatable. If it is treated in the early stages, it's not a big deal. Once it becomes chronic, it is a big deal. But even then, it can be treated. And in Canada, infectious disease doctors have no training in it at all. You mentioned in your article 
published this month in Vitality magazine, that there are some doctors in Canada who know about Lyme disease, who know how to treat it, but if they were to treat it, they could lose their license. Well, they do lose their license quite often. In British Columbia, for example, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which controls the licenses of doctors in that province, they even had a, a specific proviso forbidding any doctor in British Columbia, in the member of their college, to even test for it with the Canadian tests, which are close to useless and will only detect a certain type of uh, Lyme infection if it by, by pure luck. They even forbade testing for it. Well, that's against the Hippocratic Oath, isn't it? That's not just against the Hippocratic Oath. It's against a lot of yes, things. Yes, it's just criminal. Yes. Now, that has stopped because the when they had their most recent election, well, in 2010 they had an election, um, the, the, the incoming government basically told the college to cut the nonsense, and they did. How about here in Ontario? In Ontario, we don't have that kind of forbidding doctors what to do. It's more pernicious. Uh, so a doctor who treats particularly chronic Lyme will be pursued or has been pursued so far by the CPSO, the College of Physicians in Ontario, for the same reason that I mentioned earlier, because the College of Physicians and Surgeons explicitly aligns themselves with the policies, not the science, but the policies of the IDSA, which protects the insurance industry. So if you if you happen to go to the international conferences of ILADS, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, uh, they simply say, well, you know, uh, uh, our view on Lyme is whatever, and that's the end of it. Yeah, you will actually lose your license. I know several doctors who have, and I know quite a few doctors who treat them secretly. They treat them secretly. In other words, the files are not in the office in case the college decides to, on a hearsay or something, go after a doctor and find out whether they're treating Lyme. So they take the files home, uh, and uh, they even treat them at home. Well, those doctors are heroes. Yes, they are indeed. Um, but on the other hand... Um, I have to enter a mild criticism here. We have 26,000 doctors approximately registered with the CPSO, and if the infectious disease doctors were to say to the CPSO, okay, guys, this is it. We know what the science is, and we are going to treat patients. Cut it out. It would be over in 10 minutes. It's all about the insurance. Well, it's just a matter of the membership saying enough of this crap. Right. Yeah. But that's what's holding it back. It's the insurance. Well, it's, what's holding it back is this fight between the IDSA and ILATS and people aligning themselves arbitrarily with what is convenient instead of what is based on science. And, of course, it's also a matter of <clears throat> ignorance because if this has been kept under wraps for so long, how is an infectious disease doctor to know what to do? A good example is Hospital for Sick Children where a group of doctors became really angry with this entire scene in Lyme and wrote a fantastic article called A Twist of Lyme uh, in the Journal of Microbiology, in which they described this fiasco with our silly tests, which don't even test for the Lyme bugs, the, the Lyme varieties that are in Canada, which are specific to our environment. Uh, so you can't, you can't actually get a proper test in Canada. You just can't. Uh, it doesn't exist, and so, Health Canada admits it. So what if, if someone listening right now suspects they may have Lyme disease or a loved one has Lyme disease, what do they do? Get the hell out of the country? Go to the U.S.? Get tested? Um, there are several things you can do. One is uh, you can go onto a website called CanLyme, like Canada CanLyme, and they will help you find a doctor. 
they can contact me. I will tell them exactly where they can find what and what they can expect. Um, and they can get proper tests and they can get proper treatment, but they will have to go to the States or find themselves a vet because the veterinarians in Canada are properly trained in Lyme disease. Oh, a vet, a veterinarian. Yeah. An animal, an animal doctor. Because they're properly trained in dealing with Lyme. Oh, my word. You have to go to an, a veterinarian to get a proper diagnosis and treatment for oh, Lyme disease. If, if, if you go there he, and your dog was, for example, found to have Lyme, he, he will treat you, the ones that do. They are heroes, too. They will treat you under the name of the dog because they're not allowed to treat humans. That's going on in this province? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but if I get a call, for example, from someone who suspects it or who has been told by their doctor, oh, there's no Lyme in Canada, which is complete nonsense because the CMAJ, which is Canada's flagship journal, Canadian Medical Association Journal, has been publishing the uh, facts on how, where it is endemic and how many people are getting it and how they're getting it and all the rest of it since 1995. So theoretically, every practicing doctor in Canada should be reading the flagship journal on medical <laughs> on medicines in Canada. One would hope. MAJ, but apparently, it doesn't seem to do so mm. because very few infectious disease doctors are at all uh, trained in it. And I got a letter from Dr. Anne Doig, who was the president of the Canadian Medical Association in 2010, and she thanked us for the copy of this book and said we have to start a teaching program so that infectious disease doctors and GPs and everybody know something about this, but nothing happened. But if, if uh, Elizabeth May's bill becomes law, that is part of the provisions of that bill, then of course it would happen and there wouldn't be any way out. They would get all this education. But in the meantime, if you want to be treated, you go to the States or to Europe. And if they want to get a hold of you, Helki, how do they do that? They go into Google and put in Helkaferi and contact me, or they go on my website, helkaferi.com, and contact me, or they phone me up. I'm in the phone book. Helkaferi. Lyme is the first place you should go because that is an organization designed to help patients find treatment. And I am someone who happens to know something about it and know, knows doctors and knows the system, so I can tell you what to do. But yeah, you have to pay for it yourself. Yes, you have to get the treatment in the United States, and no, our Canada, our Canadian um, medical system does not support people with this because most infectious disease doctors know literally nothing about it. Helgi, thank you so much for your time, and uh, let's hope we have better luck uh, and better news this time next year. Thank you very much. Helga Ferry, Vitality Magazine, and uh, the book is Ending Denial. All right, my website, the portal to The Conspiracy Show, is richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, and as always, follow the truth.